1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 3, Paul writes and he says, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. That's the end of the sentence. Now one more. From such, withdraw yourself. From such, withdraw yourself. The chapter includes instructions, remember, about masters and slaves in verses 1 and 2. Instructions about false teachers in verses 3 through 5. And later he's going to talk more about money and godliness in verses 6 through 19. Paul wants to keep both the ministry of Jesus and the message of Jesus pure. So now Paul is going to return to the subject of false teachers for the not first time, not second time, now it's the third time. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, he talked about false teachers. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, he talks about false teachers. Here again in chapter 6, he's talking about false teachers. And you've got to understand something. With this amount of instruction about false teachers, we should in our hearts begin to understand that Paul cares deeply about this subject. Paul warns Timothy that false teachers embrace a different doctrine. They speculate about useless information rather than focusing on godly edification. False teachers place fruitless and empty discussion above love and personal ambition and personal ambition above truth. And so the false teachers abandon sound teaching for false teaching in verse 3. The false teacher is proud in verse 4. The false teacher is obsessed and preoccupied with controversy in verse 4, providing evidence for a corrupt mind, a kind of what I'm calling truth deficit disorder, which results in toxic spiritual or, dare I say, character disorder in verse 5. So false teachers will often use their positions for extravagant financial enrichment and they will equate godliness with gain. So Timothy is told to steer clear of these charlatans. From such, withdraw yourself, he says. So why worry? 
why should we be so concerned about what people teach? Some people are going to suggest, wait a minute, shouldn't we be more concerned about unity? Shouldn't we be more concerned about our united witness to a watching world? And Paul is going to refute the lie that doctrine doesn't matter. It matters a lot. Paul understands that in order to have a healthy heart and a healthy mind and a healthy spiritual experience with Christ, you're going to have to give yourself to healthy teaching. And so, again, people who reject sound doctrine, read healthy doctrine, will embrace unsound doctrine and so the false teacher has to be identified and dealt with. Paul warned about this years earlier in the book of Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31. Those of you who are familiar with that very famous passage, it's Paul's farewell address to the elders at Ephesus. And he said, take heed, that means be on guard. I need you to be warned, be on guard to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood for I know this that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock also from among yourselves he says the source where it's going to happen from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone day and night with tears, unquote. So Paul knows Timothy is going to face severe trials, horrible tests. He exhorts and commands to teach these things in verse 2. And later, Paul points out that the man of God, in this chapter, he's going to point out that the man of God is known by what he flees from in verse 11, follows after in verse 11, fights for in verse 12, is faithful to in verses 13 through 14. So the key to the success of the ministry leader can be found in the perfections that are found in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The perfections are found in the gospel. The, the perfections are found in Jesus. The perfections are found in the revelation. And so for the person who says to you, where do you go to church? And you say, Calvary. And they say, they laugh and they go, oh, you mean that place where they actually teach the Bible? Well, that's not enough for us. I got to tell you something. It makes perfect sense that there are people who disconnect from wholesome teaching 
But make no mistake about it, once you disconnect from wholesome teaching, you will of necessity connect to something that's less than wholesome. Look at, again at verse 3, the false teacher's false doctrine. Look what Paul says. If anyone teaches it otherwise, if anyone teaches otherwise, well, what if they have important things to say? What if they have good things to say? What if they've had some sound things to say? What if they create the most beautiful music that's available to the body of Christ, but their doctrine is disconnected from wholesomeness? If anyone teaches otherwise. Here's what Paul is saying to Timothy. Ignore what I'm saying at your own peril. This is going to be risky. If anyone teaches otherwise, pause. Paul is in effect reminding us of something that we don't want to hear and that should terrify each and every one of us. Anyone, anyone, anyone is capable of becoming a false teacher. Surely that could never happen in this church. Surely the people who are invited to come here and the people who speak in this pulpit, until there is no pulpit, they'll just walk up and down the aisle. You might wonder, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to harp on a pulpit. What I am trying to harp on is that there must be a place where the Bible is open and that it is taught. Anyone is capable of leading others astray. And tragically, false teachers can make meaningful and even lasting spiritual contributions only to abandon wholesome words, even the words of the Lord Jesus. And the doctrine which accords with holiness. We have to pause and ask the most obvious question. It seems crazy to even ask it. What makes a false teacher a false teacher? The false teacher teaches a different doctrine. You know these two compound Greek words. Hetero, different, didascali, teaching, different teaching. In short order, Paul is going to identify three characteristics of the false teacher. The false teacher is called a false teacher because of the content of what they're teaching. So that's number one. The false teacher promotes and defends false teaching. Number two, the false teacher must of necessity abandon sound, read healthy, instructions. Where, what's the source? From the Lord Jesus and the Bible's revelation. And number three, the false teacher disagrees with godly teaching. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. The false teacher disagrees with godly teaching. In what sense? 
It's the teaching that says your behavior doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're sexually promiscuous. It doesn't matter if you take drugs. It doesn't matter if you're addicted to pornography. It doesn't matter if you're cheating on your husband or wife or taxes. It doesn't matter how you live your life. And see, that's the difference between teaching and godly teaching. Remember, godly and teaching invites you to repent of your sin and turn from your sin and embrace what the Bible has to say. So Paul is going to use an interesting word to describe the false teacher's motives. The false teacher does not, look at the text, does not consent. See in verse 3, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not, look at that word because it might be easy to overlook consent, consent, pros, care, oh, may I. That word carries the idea to approach and attach yourself to something. In this case, connect or attach to wholesome words, even to the words of our Lord Jesus and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, it means to attach yourself. L let me be clear. Paul is talking about you attach yourself to what Jesus has said and what Jesus has taught. And so again, in this case, it's speaking about attaching. I'm going to suggest to you not just to the person of Jesus, but to the words of Jesus, which accord with godliness. And remember, the word wholesome is that Greek word hygiana or hygiene. We get the word hygiene. It's come to, to, in our culture and language to mean cleanliness or the absence of illness. And so even in the ancient world, it spoke of health and wellness. It was regularly translated sound in this epistle in chapter 1 verse 10. And so in one sense, this medical term is used as a metaphor. Physical wellness becomes a metaphor for spiritual wellness. And so the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus should lead to a wholesome, healthy way of thinking and speaking and acting and behaving. So the false teacher doesn't simply teach false doctrine. The false teacher eventually must, in fact, disconnect from the healthy teachings of Jesus, the healthy teachings of the New Testament writers, but then think about what's happening. They must, of necessity, promote their own belief and their own behavior which gives them permission to do whatever they want. So what does all of this mean? The false teacher will eventually deny the identity of Jesus. Why? Because they're not connected to him. Why? Because they must of necessity disconnect from his message. Why? Remember what Jesus has said. I've come down from heaven. God sent me. The message of Jesus is God sent me into your world. God sent me into your world. 
I love you and care about you. There's health and healing. There's forgiveness of sin and cleansing that's available to you. God loves you. He wants to help you. He wants to give you a new life and a new heart. But for the person who says, I don't want a new life and I don't want a new heart. I like the life that I have and I love the heart that I have. Then the message of Jesus isn't going to work for you. And so, it would appear that if the false teacher denies the righteousness that's revealed in Christ, and if the false teacher is unwilling to separate himself or herself from this world, and that means the worldview that rejects God's Messiah, they're unwilling to distance themselves from the flesh. In what sense? Remember, your flesh is everything that, des that desires whatever it happens desire apart from Christ. It would, it would appear that that's exactly what the false teacher must do. The false teacher is going to starve the message of God in Christ and feed a different message. And so in the beginning of this letter, in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul wrote, quote, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. In verse 3, when he says, as I urged you, teach no other doctrine. It's the same Greek word and phrase that's used in this passage in verse 3, teaches otherwise teaches otherwise, teaches no other doctrine. So what is Paul saying? Any teaching that denies the essentials of Christ is suspect. Paul enlarges the idea of false doctrine to include specifically the instructions that have come from the mouth of Jesus and the doctrines that lead to godly living. So the teachings of Paul and Jesus do not, I repeat, do not contradict one another. For the person who invites you to believe that, they say, Will, does Paul teach something different from Jesus? And does Jesus teach something different from Paul? Nothing could be further from the truth. Neither Paul nor Jesus taught that Christians are free to act out sexually and in an unhealthy way that violates the clear boundaries that are prescribed by the scripture. Does Jesus teach that you're free? Yes. Does Paul teach that you're free? Yes. Free in what sense? Free from the bondage, manipulation of sin. That Jesus, because of his life and his death and his resurrection, gives you permission to disconnect from that life and to connect with a new life that's found in Christ. 
One Bible writer says, quote, any teaching different from the sound instruction of the gospel of Christ is false teaching. The Greek word for sound, like I said, could be translated healthy. Such instruction is life-giving. Some commentators believe that at least one of the Gospels, perhaps Luke, may have already been in circulation, allowing believers access to sound instruction in written form. In any case, those teachings had been preserved orally and constantly taught to the disciples. Again, for the person who says, how do I know what's right? How do I know what's right? How can I be sure what's right? Paul has basically said, guess what? There has been given to us a record whereby we can know what's right and do what's right. It's your Bible. So what is Paul's concern? The false teacher teaches something different from what Jesus taught and from what the apostles taught. And it's demonstrated in their lives. Because you see, the false teacher's error is rooted and grounded in the false teacher's unwillingness. And listen carefully. The false teacher's unwillingness to agree with what Jesus says on the subject. I don't know how to make it any more clear. Can you imagine a person looks you in the eye and says, I don't believe what Jesus says about that. And you go, tell me again what it is you believe. I don't believe what Jesus says about that. Did you come from heaven from the right hand of the Father? Are you God's perfect person? Nobody's perfect. That's a lie. There's one person who is perfect, Jesus Christ the Lord. He is really perfect. We don't have to make a claim of perfection. But we must of necessity believe that Jesus makes a claim of perfection. C.S. Lewis wrote, quote, Christians believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God because he said so. J.N.D. Anderson wrote, quote, He said that he was in existence before Abram and that he was Lord of the Sabbath, that he claimed to forgive sins. He continually identified himself in his work, in his person, in his glory with the one he termed the Heavenly Father. He accepted men's worship. He said that he was going to be the judge of all men at the last day and that their eternal destiny would depend on their attitude about him. Can you imagine anyone else saying that? Even if you're famous, even if you're powerful, can you imagine a former famous president saying, I'm the way and the truth and the life. See, you laugh at the absurdity of such a statement. No matter how powerful, no matter how charismatic, no matter how influential, who can make this kind of a claim? No one. Martin Luther said, quote, Anything that one imagines of God apart from Christ is only useless thinking and vain idolatry, unquote. It was Martin Luther's way of saying, 
you know, I have some ideas and thoughts about God. Great. What is it that you think? This is what I think. But the only reliable information that we truly have about God comes from Jesus. Jesus tells us the truth about God, the identity about God, the heart of God, the privileges and characteristics of God, the mission of God, and what it is that God is trying to accomplish. Billy Graham was right when he said, you were created to have fellowship with God. That's exactly right. He also said anything less than that means you're not doing what God intended you to do. And so the false teacher questions and then breaks with the revelation of the Bible concerning Jesus, concerning the gospel, concerning salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone. The false teacher then invents his or her own narrative to suit themselves. The false teacher's opinion often will become, at least in their own minds, equal with the scripture or even exceeding the authority of the scripture. There are those people who belong to the so-called Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, popularly known as Mormons, who have made the statement that it isn't Jesus who's going to judge your eternal destiny. It's the so-called prophet Joseph Smith. Really? Jesus is going to abdicate his role? Especially after he's already made it clear, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. I think you know this, but I, I just need to repeat it. Your eternal destiny lies in the very heart of Jesus. This is why there's the invitation for you to know him and love him, believe him and accept him. The false teacher of necessity will eventually promote and then present a false view of God, a false view of Jesus, which results in a false view of salvation. And so look what it says in verse 4, the false teacher's toxic character. He is proud, Paul says, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy and strife and reviling evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. The false teacher often appears confident and knowledgeable. How many times have you heard someone say, look at this person's command of the scripture. This person knows the Bible. This person seems to have memorized the Bible. Paul says the false teacher is, read it for yourself, proud, knowing nothing. How in the world could Paul say such a thing? Here's why. Because remember, the false teacher, like Satan, 
replaces God with his own opinion about himself. The person who refuses to elevate God must of necessity elevate themselves. So Paul says the false teacher is proud, knowing nothing. These are strong words. And the false teacher might even be tempted to add harsh words or unkind words. But I need to just again tell you, how do you look at what you're reading? How do you interpret what you're reading? How do you apply what you're reading? Let me help you. Paul refuses to flatter the false teacher. Listen carefully. He won't flatter the false teacher and he won't compromise his position. What is his position? No, God sent Jesus into the world to save sinners whom I am chief. What is Paul's position? God sent Jesus into the world to save people. God sent Jesus into the world because he's God's Messiah. Paul told Timothy that Timothy's motive in teaching must be love from a pure heart and from a good conscience and from sincere faith in the opening chapter of chapter 1 verse 5. So when remember Paul says to Timothy, here's your motive, love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from sincere faith. What's the true teacher's motive? Love from a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. What is the motive of the false teacher? Pride. This is the very definition of, I don't care what God has said on the subject. My voice rings louder and truer. So Paul rightly says, that constitutes an absence of understanding. They know nothing. He talks about obsessions with controversies, arguments over words. So contrast and compare the motive of the true teacher and the false teacher. True teacher, pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. False teacher, pride, absence of understanding, obsession, preoccupation over arguments and words. The false teacher is bloated with an ever-increasing admiration of his or her own self-importance. Again, this is the very definition of pride which manifests itself in conceit. The conceit is proof positive that they know nothing. Remember in chapter 1, verse 7, the false teachers desperately want to acquire the title, teacher of the law. Paul says, they are without understanding. And so, since the false teachers teach what's contrary to Scripture what's contrary to the identity and mission of Jesus, that's contrary to the gospel, then they must of necessity draw conclusions that are not worthy, dare I say, 
unworthy. And they generate envy and strife and reviling. You look at that word reviling, you may or may not understand what, it, what the word means. In this case, the word is blasphemia. You know the word blasphemy, you've heard it. You, you have maybe some idea of what it may or may not mean. You, you understand that it usually means to speak ill of. In this context, in this construction, I actually believe that when the, when the New Testament scholars who translated the New King James Version and they use the term reviling, it means a reluctance to properly identify either good or evil I'm going to suggest to you that this means people who introduce fudge factors when it comes to talking about what is good or evil. Let me be even more blunt. For the person who says, you seem to be speaking in black and white terms. You seem to be putting things into two categories, true and false, right and wrong, good and evil. For the person who says, well, it all depends on what you mean. In this particular sense, that's what reviling is. It all depends. On what? Well, you know, on what is, is. The false teacher is caught up in a parade of endless controversy. The false teacher is reluctant to properly identify good and evil. And so the false teacher is caught up with myths, endless genealogies from chapter 1 verse 4, meaningless talk in chapter 1 verse 6, all things that promote speculation and endless argument about ideas that have no biblical basis whatsoever. But rather, these are ideas that come from the imagination of men or women, or even worse, they come from the minds of demons. The word obsessed is interesting for several reasons. Noseo. It's only used here in the entire Greek New Testament. So when Paul says the false teacher is obsessed, the King James Version uses the term doting. It literally was translated that way in the Middle Ages because when a person started to dote, or if you heard the expression of a doting old man or a doting old woman, in our culture and society, we will typically use terms like onset dementia or onset Alzheimer's. Here, 
it literally means to be sick. And in the classical Greek, it was used metaphorically to describe people who were mentally or emotionally distressed, what you and I might call mental illness. Thayer, the Greek scholar, believed that word obsessed in this context meant to mean a morbid fascination on a subject and that your fascination was so intense that you might even use the term obsession to describe your fascination. Other scholars use the term a morbid craving or quote, his disease is intellectual curiosity about trifles. Another way of saying that is an unhealthy preoccupation about trivial things. So the false teacher has this intense, read sick, preoccupation with controversy, dispute, arguments over words. Once again, the original language uses a compound, logos, machias. Again, only here in the compound in the Greek New Testament. It mean, machias is a word that meant battle. Logos is a word that meant words. So again, the way we would think about this is this is a war of words. So the false teacher, rather than looking at what the Bible says, will wage a war of words until they can manipulate you into embracing their view. Again, this isn't careful scholarship or, or the precision required of careful study. There's nothing wrong with carefully studying what the Bible says in order to understand what it means, in order to understand how it applies. The false teacher loves to split hairs and split churches. And so, we're passionate about the truth. The truth that saves men and women's souls. The truth that says, please come to Christ. Please, please turn from your sin. Please embrace the Savior. Jesus is the one who saves you. Not religion, not going to Calvary Chapel, not even listening to this sermon. The thing that saves you is when you give your heart to Christ. And so what the false teacher likes to promote ambiguity. The false teacher will sometimes use arrogance or anger to fuel the conversation. And the false teacher shuns clarity and celebrates ambiguity. The false teacher likes to distort what the Bible makes clear. And what does the Bible make clear? What Paul says to the Philippian jailer, 
Remember, he cries out. He says, what must I do to be saved? He says, believe in your heart that God sent Jesus. Believe it in your heart and confess it with your mouth. I'm not talking about just some sort of magical statement that results in a change of heart, but a deep-seated belief that creates literally the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to come inside of your heart and to shift your thinking about these things. So what does the Bible make clear? What is it that we could call essential Christianity? These are the main and plain things. What does the Bible say about the nature and character of God? What does the Bible say about Jesus? What does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy but the Bible have to say about the nature of man? What does the Bible have to say about the doctrines of salvation? What does the Bible have to say about the church, about the scriptures? What does the Bible have to say about angels and demons and Satan and their ultimate destination? What does the Bible have to say about these things? So, both Paul and Jesus warned about majoring on minor issues and neglecting major issues. Jesus said, blind guides who strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish that the outside of them may be clean also in Matthew 24. Excuse me, Matthew 23, verses 24 and 25. And so the exact definition of the gospel is given by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scripture. The gospel is the good news that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scripture. Not according to Gino, not even according to Paul, but according to the scripture, to, according to the revelation that's been given by God. Then he cites the historical reality. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus really did rise from the dead. So why is that important? Just as some sort of religious Assertion, because a dead Jesus can't save anybody. But a living Jesus can save everybody, including you. This living Jesus, this living Jesus can undo everything that sin has done so that you can be free, cleansed. The Bible's clear about the nature of God. The Bible is clear about the identity and mission of Jesus. The Bible is clear about the gospel. The Bible is clear about what it means to be saved. So what is it that the false teacher is asking you to swallow? Paul describes their teaching as useless wranglings. 
You know what that is interesting about that? It means frictions, useless frictions. Have you ever used the expression, that person rubs me the wrong way? It's this word. This person seems to just rub me the wrong way. And so Paul describes the teaching of the false teacher, rubbing him the wrong way. Why? Because somehow they ignore Jesus and somehow they ignore the gospel and somehow they ignore grace and somehow they seem to somehow, if they even touch on those subjects, it's always superficially with whatever thing that they have going on with them. He says that these useless wranglings, the origin of which lies in the minds of corrupt men, look what it says, Paul's words, destitute of the truth. So what happens when people preoccupy themselves with empty questions and meaningless words all these things lead to envy and strife, reviling, evil suspicions. Another way of putting this, drama, turmoil, insecurity. The false teacher makes it a point to elevate their understanding and intellect or revelation above what the Bible has already said on the subject. So the false teacher's false teaching infects, pollutes, corrupts what little cognitive powers that remain in the subject. The people are deprived of the truth. That's that word destitute. The word destitute is a word that has as a cognate or a, a synonym deprivation. Destitute means you don't have food or clothing or water. Here, in this metaphorical sense, it's a deprivation of truth, which gives a picture of emaciation. Have you ever seen a person who was in a Nazi concentration camp after they were liberated and their bones are, you can almost see just flesh and what looks like little bits of flesh hanging from, from a skeleton. That's what happens when people experience truth deprivation. Spiritually, they begin to die. False teachers deprive people of the truth. And so deprivation triggers images of emaciation, whether it's food, water, sleep, nutrients, but what happens when the soul and the spirit are deprived of truth? What happens to the soul that's given ever-increasing doses of toxic waste? You become hurt. Paul knows the truth. What happens when people are starved for the truth? They develop a reluctance to tolerate the light. They embrace a growing comfort with darkness. And as they embrace a growing comfort with darkness, they begin to prefer darkness. And now Jesus' words comes true, that men loved darkness rather than light because their 
deeds were evil. So Paul knows the truth. The evidence of sin in this life, of the false teachers, the evidence of a lack of love, and the absence of Jesus from their lives. And so again, what happens when human beings embrace darkness and reject the light? What happens when you're led away from the light, you're led away from Christ, you're led away from grace, you are taken by the hand and you're asked to take a different course other than the path marked truth. And look what Paul says, the false teacher perverts and has an unhealthy preoccupation with profit at the end of verse 5, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Pause for a minute and think about what what Paul just said. Who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, reflecting Christ, walking with Christ, being with Christ. Is this a change in character or is this a change in What's the word I'm looking for? Social standing. Does wealth produce godliness or holiness? So here's Paul, who supposed that godliness is a means of gain. It's another way of Paul saying, who promote a prosperity gospel. Who think that you should have your best life ever. That somehow godliness is gain. In what sense? In the sense that since Christ's likeness is likely to produce persecution, since Christ's likeness is likely to produce suffering, since Christ's likeness is likely to produce isolation, and hatred from the world in which you live, then let's go for something else. The false teacher isn't interested in giving you what you need. The false teacher is interested in giving you what he or she needs. The false teacher wants to give you Christ without a cross, Christ without suffering. They want to give you a Christ that gives you unlimited health, unlimited wealth, and unlimited blessing. But guess what? The gospel is designed to give you what you need. Death to sin, a new life in Christ, forgiveness of sin, hope and a right relationship with God in Christ. I want more. What? I want more than heaven. Really? Yes, I want more than Jesus. What do you want? I want to be married. I want to have wealth. I want to have this. I want to have that. The false teacher loves darkness. The false teacher says, 
let's turn down the lights. The false teacher says, let's turn down the lights. Let's not stare into the light. The person who's determined to live an immoral life, the person who's determined to live a self-centered life, the person who's determined to live a self-indulgent life, the person who's determined to live that way will throw away this teaching will turn Gino off, will walk out the door and never come back. The gospel reveals that the real reason for rejecting Christ and the gospel and repentance is because people love darkness rather than light. So why does Paul say withdraw from such men? Because they're predators. And you're the prey. Can you imagine having a daughter? Some of you say, it's not hard for me to imagine. I have a daughter. Imagine you have a daughter and she's very young and she says, I met a guy and he wants to be my boyfriend, but he says, we have to keep it a secret. Moms, what do you tell daughters who have boyfriends who want to keep it a secret? Run. Run away! What is it about the false teacher who wants you to keep the false teaching on the down low? Titus 3.10, reject a divisive man after the first and the second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning and self-condemned. Withdraw, reject. False teachers divide people. False teachers divide families. False teachers divide churches. And most false teachers don't want to abandon the happy hunting grounds of the healthy church. So how are we counseled to avoid false teachers? Number one, false teachers are deceptive. Number two, false teachers are dangerous. Number three, false teachers are divisive. Number four, false teachers give people what they want instead of what they need. Number five, false teachers are not, I repeat, are not innocent. This isn't a person who makes a mistake. This is a person who defines what they're saying and then defends what they're saying and insists that you believe it. False teachers of necessity won't tolerate the gospel of grace for long. Remember, their goal is to change your mind about God, about Jesus, about the gospel, and about salvation. But make no mistake about it. Once you change your mind about those important issues, they invite you to believe what they believe. And since the Bible is the source of truth, the false teacher will often insist that the value of the Bible is only what they have to say about it. 
If you know somebody like that, walk. No, no, forget that. Run away. I have a bad knee. I, I can't run like, run anyway. We're going to have communion here in a moment. The false teacher will often tell you that there are secrets. Secrets that only they know. Secrets that aren't contained in the Bible. Usually it has to do with a secret that you want to know. And so they invite you into their unhealthy preoccupation and obsession. But Jesus remains the only cure from the problem of sin. The only solution to cleansing. Let me just pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, the Bible says again about communion that as often as we do this, we do this to show forth the coming of Jesus. Lord, it's been a part of the church's observance that, Lord, we gather together, we encourage one another, we pray for one another, Lord, we pray that even now, as we think about Paul's hard words, that, Lord, they're meant to protect the people that he loves and that he cares about. That, Lord, this kind of firm admonition is in order to get us to be aware that there are people who don't have our best interests in mind. There are people who would turn us away from the simplicity that's found in Jesus and the reality that's found in a person who loves us, who died for us, who's willing to cleanse us and promise us heaven and that we can have Jesus and that Jesus really is the person who ensures the, our entrance into heaven. That we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But it's a faith that doesn't ever remain alone. It's a faith that changes us so fundamentally on the inside that we want to be men and women who love you and serve you. And then who love each other. And so again, Lord, prepare our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.